This episode of the ERRR podcast is brought to you by John Cat Educational. And this month, we're highlighting Martin Robinson's new book, Curriculum Revolutions. Curriculum Revolutions is a tool to assist schools in creating, building, and maintaining a joined-up curriculum that is cohesive and coherent. Martin Robinson's unique curriculum wheel leads you through a continuous cycle of planning, designing, delivering, reflecting upon, and reviewing your curriculum. This process is designed to involve managers, teachers, and pupils, and to ensure that all understand the importance of a well-functioning curriculum as the cornerstone of the school and the quality of education it delivers. Curriculum Revolutions also explores the potential pitfalls in the curriculum that a school adopts, either consciously or unconsciously. Robinson argues that a sophisticated understanding of the underlying structure or thought architecture of a curriculum can make all the difference to quality curriculum design. So, if you're keen for more insights into curriculum planning, you can get Martin Robinson's Curriculum Revolutions at John Cat Educational. And with a special code ERRR30, you can get 30% off all books via the John Cat website. This includes my two books too, Cognitive Load Theory in Action and Tools for Teachers. Again, that code for 30% off is ERRR30. This episode of the ERRR podcast is also brought to you by Catalyst, a project pioneered by Catholic education in the Archdiocese of Canberra and Goulburn. Catalyst is an evidence-based educational project that's working directly in schools and with teachers across the ACT and parts of New South Wales. Catalyst has its genesis in this podcast and is a structured and strategic approach to bringing the science of reading and the science of learning to life in more than a thousand classrooms. It's drawing on both local and international expertise, including several guests from the ERRR podcast, to realise the bold vision of transforming students' lives through learning by developing excellent teachers and leaders. If you'd like to find out more about opportunities at the Catalyst Project and Catholic Education in Canberra, including the professional development that they're running, the way that they are engaging Australian and world leaders in evidence-based education, and even to explore employment opportunities, just click on the Catalyst logo or follow the link in the show notes. What truly matters is teachers' expertise. The most important tip for new teachers is to set out your boundaries. 44% of jobs will be automated. It reinforces cycles of disadvantage. Hello listeners and lovers of learning and welcome to episode 72 of the Education Research Reading Room, the podcast that brings you into the discussion with inspiring educators and education researchers. I'm Ollie Lovell and it's a pleasure to be your host in the ERRR. I'll start today by acknowledging the Boonwurrung people of the Kulin Nation on whose lands this podcast was recorded. Pay respects to elders past and present and acknowledge that colonisation and dispossession are both ongoing processes. Today we're speaking with Vivian Robinson. Vivian is Emeritus Distinguished Professor at the University of Auckland, specialising in organisational and educational psychology. She has written over 150 academic articles on education and education leadership, and several books too. This is Vivian's second appearance on the ERRR podcast. Her first appearance was back on episode 28, during which we spoke about her excellent book, Reduce Change to Increase Improvement, which maps out how to have open-to-learning conversations, speak honestly and effectively, and inquire into people's theories of action when trying to stimulate organisational change. 
Vivian's idea of inquiring into theories of action is within the top five to ten discrete ideas that I'd say I've gained from the past five and a half years of running the ERRR podcast. I find myself considering people's theories of action and how to have open to learning conversations on a weekly to fortnightly basis. And when I see people getting leadership wrong, more often than not, theories of action and open to learning conversations are the first things that I go to. Which leads us into this podcast. In this episode, Vivian and I speak about her new book, Virtuous Educational Leadership: Doing the Right Work the Right Way. This book builds on Vivian's earlier work on effective leadership to go a step deeper and ask, what is it that underlies people's abilities, motivations, and limitations when it comes to leading effectively? And this discussion provides invaluable mental models for better understanding the leader you may be working under, understand yourself as a leader. and even to better understand the leader that you want to become. In this episode, Vivian as always delivers countless pearls of wisdom. If you're keen for a weekly injection of educational insight, stimulation and resources, then sign up to my weekly edu email. Each week I share with subscribers all of the juiciest educational tidbits that I've collected over the past week, wrapped up in an easy to digest and short email message. Join thousands of other teachers across the world and stay up to date with the most important ideas in education with this Friday afternoon message. To sign up for my weekly emails, go to ollielevel.com/subscribe. That's ollielevel.com/subscribe. Now, without further ado, let's jump straight into episode 72 of the ERRR podcast with Vivian Robinson. Vivian Robinson, welcome back to the Education Research Reading Room. It's lovely to be back again, Ollie. Thank you very much for having me. My absolute pleasure, Vivian. I'm curious, what what's been keeping you busy since our last podcast? What's been keeping me busy in COVID lockdowns, etc., is finishing my book Virtuous Educational Leadership which we're going to be talking about in this podcast. So that's been keeping me busy and I can say that for me there was sort of a silver lining in the whole covid lockdown thing because if I'd have been continuing to get on and off planes and as I was doing before um it wouldn't have been finished. So that's been a wonderful getting that finished and now this is probably only the Sony the second time I've really talked about it it's not published yet it will be out in October so it's in production at the moment in addition I've been having a bit of a binge on tramping so I've been trying to get I I love tramping and I've been doing quite a lot of fitness work and I've been tramping in various ones of New Zealand's beautiful national parks and got some more planned Forgive me Vivian what is what is tramping? Oh, tramping Americans call it hiking. Oh, I got it. Yeah. I know what that is. <laughs> yes, I I'm not sure what Australians call it. Bushwalking generally. Oh, okay, right. Yes. But yeah, hiking people would say hiking as well. Cool. Well, you've been keeping yourself fit of mind and body, Vivian. That's great. A new first question that I've begun to ask in this podcast because I've come to the realization that you know ultimately in many ways our beliefs about the purpose of it, of education drive our actions uh, and vice versa a little bit but that kind of means that we've got a new question that I didn't ask you last time so I'm excited to hear your answer here Vivian what do you think or what do you see as the purpose of school-based education yeah it's it's a 
really relevant question for me, Ollie, because I start the book in terms of what constitutes the right work by identifying the purposes of education. And like many of the people who write about this, I'm arguing that there are, mo- there are th- three purposes. One is what you can generally call preparation. And this is a purpose that includes preparation for the life goals that students choose and wish to pursue. And the purpose of school, one of the main purposes of schooling is to give students the capabilities and the self-management competencies that enable them to achieve their goals in terms of life purpose. And that, of course, includes fulfilling employment. I mean, there's, you know, I mean, Winch, who's a philosopher of education, talks about how it is really important to acknowledge the considerable evidence that that's what students want us to do, especially at at secondary school level. So preparation for life and a fulfilling life in terms of employment and meeting one's goals in that sphere is really important. That's first, not necessarily the most important. The second one is what Biesta, who's a European philosopher of education, calls the development and recognition of the autonomy of students. So that is developing them as autonomous, self-regulating individuals. And that that, of course, is much more complex than just giving students choice. In order to develop autonomy in that rich sense, we have to make informed choices, which means we know the consequences and what the implications are of various sorts of choices. And also it means that students have the ability to not be controlled by the wishes of others or their own undisciplined urges. So that, you know, modern curricula talk about self-management, self-regulatory capabilities. Well, that's critical to being an autonomous learner and an autonomous person. So that's the the, the development of those self-managing, self-regulatory capabilities is really important. And the third one is socialisation. And socialization into, yes, I mean, into democratic society, but also we are, as you will know, Ollie, it's much more complex than just saying socialization into one particular tradition because we are increasingly leading diverse heterogeneous schools. And for example, many leaders are having to navigate the fact that the socialisation that students may be getting in certain communities at home is not conducive to critical thinking, whereas the socialisation into civic participation in their society is for critical thinking. So it's not just socialising into one dominant tradition. There's lots of different contexts in which socialization is relevant, including navigating the tensions between them. So I use in the book the example of mathematics. You can be socialized into a mathematical community as a mathematical 
reasoner and thinker, or you can be socialized into mathematics in terms of mathematics is a mathematical fluency getting the right answer sort of socialization. So Biesta talks about how every act of teaching and leading, of course, shapes teaching acts, has that three-dimensional aspect in terms of purpose. You're simultaneously, whether you intend to or not, socializing them into a tradition of mathematics. You're, You're preparing them or not for being capable mathematical problem solvers and reasoners, and you are also teaching them how to regulate their own learning and progress. So that's the three purposes wrapped into one set of practices, and that's the integration of those three purposes. Mm, thanks, Vivian. That's great. Very, very thorough answer. And I really like the idea of those kind of, I guess, the kind of three axes and each teaching act, likely each um, experience in school more broadly, shapes students in ways that sometimes are designed or and often are not designed along each of those axes. I think that's a really um, valuable point to make. So the book we're having a chat about today, and hopefully we can bring preparation, autonomy and self-regulation and socialization into the discussion more as well as we go along. But the, the the book we're talking about today that you've written is called Virtuous Education Leadership. Now, I'm quite interested because, you know, you, you wrote Reduce Change to Increase Improvement. That's been an incredibly successful book. Uh, it was a great podcast and one of the most popular HBLA episodes so far as well. Lots of good ideas in there. Obviously, you've been doing fantastic work with governments, schools, sectors, uh, lots in Australia, but right across the world as well. I'm really curious, through all of that, what was it that made you go, one, I need to write another book, and two, I need to write it about virtues? Yes, that's a great question. And, and I mean, it might have been easier to stop where I <laughs> to stop at the last successful book because this book is certainly more complex than that last one. And when we go on, I can talk about why it's more complex. But let me just give you a little scenario that maybe helps answer the question. When I'm teaching um, interpersonal effectiveness, when I'm teaching the details of how to assist leaders to lead change or improvement in their schools. The methodology we use, as you know, is one where you have to gather behavioural evidence of how leaders actually speak, how they lead a meeting and how they have a conversation with a teacher who perhaps doesn't want to do what they want them to do. So in the workshop, we actually practice and practice and rehearse and coach and I model how to have those their conversation and that's an incredibly rich process which people find both hugely challenging but also hugely beneficial sometimes when i am in the fifth or sixth round of coaching the the, the person in the practice chair and their colleagues who are hopping in and out having turns trying to do this Sometimes I get the feeling that I'm actually more committed to solving the problem than they are, okay? That my commitment, they've they've given up, 
they're tired, they lose concentration. It doesn't happen very often, but it's just one little, I hope, powerful instance which answers your question, why did I talk about virtues of character? Why did I want to write about virtues of character? And so that notion of sense of duty, absolute passion and commitment for the students, because if we can't get this worked out with this teacher, the students are going to continue to be disadvantaged in some way. The perseverance, the ability to take risks, the motivations, in other words, the desire to learn as opposed to be told what to do, the desire to follow up and practice. So so no, all my language right now is about character. And when you think about the language of capabilities, not always, but often, and certainly in my writing, that's been knowledge and skills. But I haven't talked about character. I haven't talked about the motivations. I haven't talked about the reasoning processes, the thought, the leader's cognition. And so by talking about virtues, using Aristotle's notion of virtues, which is a very rich notion that embraces all of those things. You can't be virtuous if you if you don't have knowledge, if you don't have practical wisdom, if you don't have experience and the right motives. Okay, so that's all in one package. Virtues embraces all of that. So, does that answer your question about why I I wanted to deal with that? I guess what I what I heard there was you said when you're working with these leaders, sometimes you get to a point where it becomes clear that the reason why the training isn't having the effect you'd like it to have is there's something deeper going on within that individual that's conflicting with the training or inhibiting them. And you're saying virtues are a kind of a broad term that we can use to refer to a lot of that under-the-surface stuff, which includes knowledge, beliefs, life experience, things like that. And the motivations and reasoning processes that are going on. So, so just to contrast, there, there might be in that practice situation, there might be somebody who is distressed, in tears. They brought, they have brought forward an incredibly challenging, sometimes toxic relationship issue with colleagues or with someone there, there who reports to them. And yet they are determined to continue to practice and try to become more skilled and more confident about how they're going to have those conversations. And then they'll go back to school and do it. And then they'll write to you and tell you what happened. So that's, you know, that's a positive example of what what we sometimes see. And in fact, more often than much more often than than the than the negative example. And so they um so that notion of virtues is desirable dispositions of character. That's what a virtue is. It's a desirable trait or disposition. And so we're talking about character. One of the reasons why I think people have admired your work and one of the reasons I've admired your work over the years is because you usually do take it to that deeper level, right? The whole point that I took from theories of action is we can't just skirt around on the surface. We actually need to go into the deep beliefs people have about cause and effect within a scenario to understand why something isn't happening. So I'm wondering, uh, and perhaps another way to add a bit more color to, to this as well is to say, what do virtues capture 
that a theory of action doesn't. And maybe within that answer, you can cover what a theory of action is for listeners who haven't heard the first episode. Yes. Well, a theory of action says that the way a teacher teaches is not just the observable moves and teaching moves, the observable behaviours, but those observable behaviours are anchored in a set of beliefs about how to teach those students that subject, that material in this context now. And so that the, the beliefs plus the behaviours have consequences for the teacher and for the students intended and unintended. So that causal chain between beliefs and actions and consequences is, um, that's why it's called a theory. It's not just a collection of bullet points. It's, it's got a logic. It's got a logic to it. Now, the concept of a theory of action is neutral. You can have a good theory that that makes you respond excellently to those students, or you can have a bad theory. You know, just like academic theories, they can be good, bad, valid, invalid, or, you know, whatever. Well, so do theories of action, which are just theories of practice. There's no evaluative uh, connotation. It's just a theory. The next step is how do you evaluate the worth of it? And then how do you reliably adopt and improve your theories of action? And that's where I think character, perseverance, sense of duty and responsibility come in, in terms of motivating the effort that is required to become a more excellent leader. And the more excellent leaders will have more for every, you know, specific context, they will have more effective, more better theories of action on the whole. There will still be situations in which they will fall over, of course. Yeah. So one of the main things I picked out there was that, well, there were two main things. One was that there's no kind of good or bad evaluative framework for theories of action they are simply beliefs about cause and effect um so that's one thing the virtues are virtues are good they're things that we want so that's the, the positive and the other thing is that that the virtues capture a kind of motivational side of things that theories of action perhaps do not yes that, that that's right and virtues of course are contrasted with vices so we contrast courage with timidity. We contrast patience with impatience. And so the virtues and vices are often, you know, in tension with one another. And it's not always about trying, you know, I mean, there's there's virtuous courage and there's non-virtuous courage. I mean, you know, I talk in the book about people, leaders needing to be courageous, but they have to be respectful as well. You can't just blurt out your frustration because you'll end up being rude to the other person. You might be being courageous, but you're being disrespectful. So that's not virtuous. Virtuous, you know, to be virtuous, you've got to integrate the relevant virtues in that particular situation. Mm. 100%. I, I think that's that's really good. And we're starting to really shape up what's meant by a virtue and why they're important. The next question that I really had on my mind when I was reading your book, Vivian, was how do people and school leaders 
are included within this. How do we acquire the virtues that we have? Well, the sort of cop-out answer to that is um, at mother's knee. In other words, we are. it's a lifelong process and it depends what values and standards were held for you by your parents, by your caregivers, and what consistency of love and discipline and care and support and teaching did you get in order to help you become a good person. So when parents teach their children to share their toys, they are teaching them um, a virtue of generosity, of being patient, of taking their turns. All of that is good parenting. So that's the main way we learn. But of course, if that was the only way we learn, I wouldn't be doing the leadership development work that I'm doing. So one of the ways, let's just take the example of courage. So a person, a leader may have actually have a quite timid disposition. So that is their their character, their their disposition. But they can, in a role-specific way, become more courageous by, you know, in our workshops, we will say, bring us a conversation that you need to have, a meeting that you need to lead, that where you're afraid of saying what you think you need to say, okay? And then we ask them to show us, you know, do it. And they're usually very, they're timid, they minimize, they use the, the sandwich, which is you start with the praise and then you say the, uh, the, the critical thing and then you end up with the praise. So they'll do that. They will be vague and indirect, right? But we can teach them how to be more courageous in that conversation. And then as they become more skilled, they will be less fearful and be more willing to have those conversations. And so you get a virtuous cycle developing of they become more courageous as a leader because they can envisage socially acceptable and effective ways of having those conversations. Whereas before they couldn't even imagine, the only thing they could imagine before was actually creating a a, a staff grievance. So they didn't have the conversations and they went back into their timidity and their avoidance strategies. So when they become more skilled, they become more confident, they become more motivated, they practice in the real time uh, more and have those conversations and start to see themselves as unafraid or certainly less afraid in those situations. Mm, that's great. So, yeah, the question I asked that led to that, just to recap for listeners, were you know, where, do, where do values, virtues come from? And to break down your answer, what I heard there, you talked about in the context of with at mother's knee and also in workshops. And there's three things that I pulled out there. One was explicitly explaining to the toddler or to the, the leader what it would look like to be virtuous in this situation, like making it explicit. A second one is is kind of modeling it, showing them what that could look like. And the third one is giving them the experience of what it actually feels like to be expressing or, or to be living in line with that virtue. And, and it's kind of when that happens, you could create a self-reinforcing cycle where they're having a positive experience with, with doing it uh, and it becomes more and more part of their identity. 
yes, yes, that's right. You know, and I don't want to claim that, that, you know, we would call that leader, that timid leader, you know, that they're never going, you know, their disposition in general might still be one of of timidity, but in the role-related leadership work where they've had the coaching, they have grown. I mean, that's what we sometimes what we mean by grown. They have grown, they have become less timid, more forthright, and more effective in dealing with the issues that are part of their responsibility. That's great. Before we kind of dive in a little bit deeper into the virtue side of things and a taxonomy of virtues and things like that, I did want us to zoom out again because virtues, whilst they are central to your book, they do form a key part of kind of an overall narrative that runs through the book, Vivian. So I did want to give you an opportunity now just kind of step back and and to take myself and take the listeners through the, the arc of virtuous education leadership. Well, you're quite right. There, I mean, one of the things that, that made writing this book quite challenging was that is that it has a argument that runs through it, but that argument draws on quite a few different disciplines. So it's called the subtitle really tells the story, doing the right work the right way. Now that's a pretty bold subtitle. So I have to defend what is the right work for educational leaders? So that's why I had to delve into it. So the right work is pursuing and hopefully achieving the purposes of educational institutions. And those purposes are the three purposes we talked about before. Some philosophers call it four, but, you know, preparation, socialization and the development of autonomous persons. Now, if those are the purposes, that's incredibly abstract. So how do we get from there to leadership? So in order to to, to bridge that enormous gap, because I didn't want to write, uh, you know, just an abstract philosophical treatise, you know me, I want to have a strong string between the abstraction and the big concepts and the actual words and thoughts of leaders in order to enact those theories and concepts. So we have the purposes, right, let's take those purposes. What does the science of teaching and learning tell us about what leaders and teachers need to be doing to achieve those purposes? So having discovered the purposes, then I want to be uh, concrete about what implications those purposes have for leaders and teachers in terms of their practices. And so there's a big gap between those philosophical purposes and, you know, what do I do in this situation tomorrow sort of thing. So I then had to ask the question, what does the science of learning and teaching tell us about how those purposes are achieved? First part of that was preparation. What does preparation require these days of modern curricula with the development of particular student capabilities? It's not just, you know, um, learning the content of the subjects. Our curricula are much more ambitious than that in terms of, you know, metacognitive skills, self-regulation, collaboration, and what I ended up calling, uh, which the National Academy in the United States calls deep learning. 
So I start with what do we know about deep learning and how do students learn, including such things about where does factual knowledge fit in, where do conceptual schema fit in, and then what do we know about what how teachers need to teach in order to foster deep learning. And we actually know quite a lot about that. And then what I did was I said, and this is more of a, a inferential, but I think still logical, okay, if teachers need to teach in that particular way, what do leaders need to be doing to enable teachers to do that? So, for example, if deep learning involves learning how to problem solve and do word problems and maths and science, uh, what do leaders and what, what does that say about what leaders should be doing in terms of how they observe those teachers, how they evaluate the teachers, the tools that they give teachers, how they to help them plan for deep learning? All of that has to be aligned. So I then went through some of those leadership sets of practices, building on the five dimensions that I had in student-centred leadership, but updating them and enriching them because I hadn't talked about deep learning in my in my student-centred leadership book. Then having got that, that, so that maps out what doing the right work is for leaders. It's the work that enables teachers to succeed in teaching for deep learning. And that meets the, the three purposes. And then I was saying, well, what does doing that work in the right way look like? And that's where the virtues come in. And so the virtues are specific to the role of educational leadership. So I was thinking about as well, how do we specify how that work gets done in a contextually and appropriate and specific way? So did that does that map out the argument, Ollie, or does that still leave you sort of with some gaps? Yeah, so so to recap what I heard from that, we're building on the subtitle, doing the right work in the right way. And the right work is you've suggested the right work is helping teachers to teach in a way that helps students to apprehend or, or gain the three purposes of education on their journey through education. And you you suggested that through deep learning which is learning that includes both curriculum content but also an, an ability to develop self-regulation, metacognition, collaboration and things like that, we actually help them to achieve those purposes. And so that's the, the right work. And then the second part is the right way. How do leaders, you know, what steps do leaders need to take and what do they need to do to enable teachers to do these things? Uh, and that's where the virtues really come in. Yes, and because, you see, if you just leave it at doing the right work, you can do the right work in good or bad ways. So we know, for example, that leaders who they might be doing classroom observations and they might be doing them in terms of deep learning, you know, so that's the right work. We've got, we've got alignment between how we observe teachers and give them feedback and teaching for deep learning. But the motivations of those leaders is really important because if leaders are giving teachers feedback in order to surveil them, in order to judge them in a prejudged sort of way, in order to categorize them, in order to be seen to be in classrooms because their bosses have said you should, which happens in the United States, their bosses have said you should be in classrooms more, 
then then those are bad motives. And as opposed to motives, which is I'm observing this teacher and my observations and feedback are aligned to what needs to happen to promote deep learning in students. And I'm doing that in a way which is collaborative, motivated by developmental goals, highly transparent and negotiated, frank and honest in my feedback, committed to supporting this teacher to getting better, committed to making progress and following up. See, that's why I had to add doing the right work in the right way. And in fact, you could could also add for the right reasons. (laughs) Mm, Yeah, that's a good one. So within this, there's also kind of a, a framework for problem solving that you introduce within the book, which you call complex collaborative problem solving. First of all, how does this fit into this picture of doing the right work in the right way? And secondly, what is this, this model? Well, as soon as you start trying to become concrete and talking about what the right work for leaders is, leaders will quite rightly say, but that has to be context specific. So that took me to look at the what context actually is. And context is typically described as categorical, rural versus urban, small versus large school, secondary versus primary, remote versus metropolitan, advantaged versus socioeconomically disadvantaged school. But when you actually think about it, that those broad categories of context are not are not an awful lot of use. They're far too abstract. What leaders mean by context and what I think we need to be able to specify is, here's an example. I have to raise achievement for this group of students who are now two to three years behind in their achievement, partly and made worse by COVID remote learning and COVID lockdowns, and I have to figure out a strategy for helping those students meet age-related benchmarks. Now, I'm helping a senior leadership team do this right now. Now, and that is a problem to be solved. The problem is this is the achievement of the student, this is the achievement of the students, this is where it should be to meet age-related benchmarks, and we, our job is to close that gap. That, that's, in one sense, a problem. But in order to close that gap in this school with these students, you have to meet a whole lot of requirements. What is our staffing? What are the capabilities of our staff? What is the time frame we've got? What are our existing expertise? Who knows about deep learning? And on and on. So that constitutes the context for solving the problem. So the context is all of the requirements that a solution must satisfy. Okay, And I have numerous examples of this in the book, including a school improvement one in in the case study. Now, the process of figuring out what the problem is, what causes it, what the relevant requirements are, and how they can be satisfied is what I call collaborative complex problem solving. And I'm arguing that nearly all the work of leaders 
is complex problem solving in one sort or another. Certainly the work of improvement is, and that's what I've actually really focused on more in the book in terms of doing the right work, the work because it's the toughest, doing the work of improvement. Management of the school is also important and management of the school is rolling out the routines that are solutions to problems we've already solved. As soon as you've got a routine, you've solved the problem, unless the routine no longer works, in which case you have to go back into solving it. So management's really important to have hundreds of routines working smoothly so that there is space and brain space as well as time to solve the complex problems and that is a process of what I call complex collaborative problem solving and that is the work is problem solving apart from rolling out routines but that that should yeah. be that was a really interesting phrase. All, all leadership essentially is complex problem solving in addition to rolling out routines, which are solutions, previously discovered yes, solutions to other exactly. problems. Yeah, exactly. that's a really clear That's a really clear way to lay it out. That, that's clear. And, and Herb Simon, um, first, and this, Herb Simon first made that, distinct, that distinction. Well, I don't know whether he was the first, but I've quoted him in the book in terms of, you know, I mean, in terms of problems that are routines that are already solved. So solving problems establishes a new routine and that gets embedded. We don't need to give it a lot of cognitive effort. We don't need to do highly deliberative work to solve those problems. We just need to roll them out and have them done efficiently and well. When they no longer work, then you have to bring that forward into the deliberative mode. So it's, you know, like automatic reasoning versus which is you're, you're rolling out your routines, your quick solutions because you've already worked it out before. You copy last year's timetable. But doing the timetable the first year is a huge effort. And then, as in the school I'm working with now, they have to rework the whole timetable because they're trying to free up resources to tutor kids who are way behind. So they're having to rejig staffing and uh, changing people's jobs. It's huge in order to find the resources to solve the problem of having so many kids failing. That's great. And this, I mean, this is kind of a, a theme that listeners of the podcast will be familiar with. It's like at the individual level, level we had, you know, Harry Fletcher Wood on talking about habits and at the individual level we try to develop productive habits in our own lives to free up cognitive space to do more creative work or more productive work at the classroom level you know we talked to Tom Bennett about behavior management we try to at the classroom level establish routines for things like entering the classroom without disruptions handing out books so that we free up time we solve those problem the problem of how do I get every student in their seat and with their books open you solve it with a routine roll it out, free up space and time in the classroom for higher level instruction. And then at the institutional level, it's exactly the same thing. It's like, you know, how do we solve the problem of where to put students in learning spaces in order to, for learning to happen? You solve that problem and it becomes a routine, you roll it out. It's, it's wonderful. And I mean, a very good example of it for leaders is, you know, leaders who are running from one um, playground fight to the next, you know, or the lineup of kids on detention. So that should tell them that, that whatever routines they've got for, for student misbehavior are not working. So, yeah, we, we line the kids up every day. We spend the next, you know, the deputy principal spends the next hour and a half or the deans or something dealing to those kids. We haven't got 
or the, or one of the schools I'm working in, there's a set of routines around misbehaving students get sent to deans out of class. Deans are spending all their time dealing with these students that are sent out. Teachers are not learning better behaviour management strategies in their classes. So we have a routine that's dysfunctional. Mm. Yeah, makes so much sense. And coming back to that original question of, of you know, where is that complex collaborative problem solving and where does it fit in? Just to recap for listeners, so we're helping teachers to do the right work in the right way. The right work for them in many cases is actually solving problems. So this CCPS is a framework for solving problems in the right way. So the, the steps, I'll just read them out. Step one or the stages, stage one, agree on the problem to be solved. Stage two, inquire into causes. Stage three, formulate solution requirements, which you just talked about the fact that that is what context is. Often we say- That is what context is. Yeah. What is, you know, what's the context, but it's actually the solution requirements, stage three. Stage four, implement and monitor solution strategies. And stage five, evaluate your impact. Now, something I was really interested in, Vivian, was I I took this framework back and I compared it to the the four phases of theory engagement from reduce change to increase improvement. And those stages are, one, agree on the problem to be solved, which is the same first stage. Two, reveal the relevant theories or theory or theories of action, which in many cases is inquiring into the causes because usually people act in in a way that's in line with their theories of action. Three, evaluate the merit of current or alternative theories of action. And four, implement and monitor a new sufficiently shared theory of action. So I I brought that up because I was really curious to know what does your CCPS framework, complex collaborative problem solving framework, what what did you think it was important to add to that, that the original framework didn't have such that you wanted to kind of redo it and give it a different name? Yes. Well, I'm not sure whether it's redoing it. I don't think it is redoing it. But I think your question about how these two things fit together is a really interesting and difficult question, including for me. At the moment, what I'm thinking is that when you is it connects to causal inquiry. So in the book, there is a case study of a school that has terrible chronic absence rates. It's a middle-class school in Victoria, Australia, and it has very bad chronic absence rates. And And we went through the five stages of collaborative complex problem solving. Now, the causal inquiry was, what are the causes of the absence? And we collected data from multiple sources in order to answer that question and came up with three groups of cause. One was the inefficient and unreliable management of absence. So that's the whole issue of recording absence, timely reporting of absence, who knows who's absent, who acts on it, what do the tutor teachers do, da-da. Massive number of causes that are in that category. Now, in order to discover that, we didn't have to do theories of action. We didn't have to go into people's beliefs. You know, we didn't have to go right deep down into people's beliefs about the student management system and recording data and not recording data and stuff like that. We just had to all agree that it was pretty slack and do better, you know, eventually. 
and talk about why it was slack and what would make it, you know, what the solution requirements for making a better system would be and then design a better system. So going deep into teachers' beliefs about the recording of absence and the importance of absence or attendance or whatever, we, did, we didn't really need to do that for some, for quite a few of those causes. We went through those stages. But sometimes in that, so the, the investigate the beliefs about the issue some t- comes into uh, stage two, which is to in, inquire into the causes. When there is resistance, when there is tension, when there is opposition, when you really need to dig in. And so if you find that the causes, that there is absence particularly related to a group of teachers in a particular subject, they believe that these students should not be in their subject, they're quite happy if the students skip their classes, etc., then you probably have to go into and challenge those beliefs. The theories of action that lead those teachers to continue to teach in a way that alienates those students, but not always. So so it mostly fits into that second stage of, of causal inquiry. But when you're looking at big school improvement problems, there'll be aspects of that problem that you can find out the cause and address them without going that deep. Or you can address the theory of action really quickly. So, for example, a focus group of students who were away a lot, and then we asked them, first of all, if they knew how often they were away, and the answer to that was mostly they didn't. So there's the self-regulation thing that's, you know, not happening. And what had they noticed about absence at school? Well, they'd noticed that the major people who noticed that they were away were their friends. Uh, and not and not the teachers. So that's probing into some of the beliefs and perceptions of students. So there's we did a bit. So you could say that's a bit of theory of action stuff going on there. Absolutely, but it it wasn't a huge deal. I mean the the as the school began to change the language and the culture and its attention to these issues, the theory of action of the students actually changed reasonably quickly the messages to parents about how the last three weeks of school were important and that sort of thing. Mm. Dear listeners, if you're finding this discussion with Vivian stimulating and you'd like to be able to easily refer back to and remember some of the most valuable takeaways from our discussion, why not consider becoming a patron of the ERRR podcast? Patrons are listeners who contribute a monthly donation to support the ongoing production of the show and, in return, receive a summary each month of the key takeaways from the episode. Patrons also receive access to an interactive transcript of each episode, meaning that if you'd like to listen back to a specific part of the episode, you can simply do a word search for a key term, then be taken directly to the spot within the podcast and listen back at the convenient click of a button. I really enjoyed this discussion with Vivian, and I think that there are so many valuable takeaways from this episode. From the ideas of why virtues are important, to Vivian's framework of virtues, leadership virtues, problem-solving virtues, and interpersonal virtues, to an important idea of complex collaborative problem-solving, there are a huge number of high-quality ideas that really are worth both unpacking and remembering from today's show. And that's what I help you to do in this month's ERRR Summary. At higher tiers, ERRR members also have access to a members-only podcast with special insights and episodes that go beyond the standard ERRR. Clip requests of your favourite episode segments and even the opportunity to personally connect with me to discuss teaching and learning. 
So if you'd like an actionable summary of this episode of the Each Blog Podcast and to explore additional benefits such as the members-only podcast, and if you'd like to support the ongoing production of the show, simply go to patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to sign up to support the show for as little as the price of a cup of coffee per month. That's patreon.com forward slash E-R-R-R to support the show and help to keep it sustainable for the long term. Now, back to this episode of the ETRR podcast with Vivian Robinson. Very good. So, yeah, I guess the phases for theory engagement or theory engagement, it kind of is a thread that runs through the collaborative complex problem solving because we actually need to consider where how theories of action are involved at each stage. For example, uh, building on what you were saying, we might not actually agree on the problem to be solved because we have different beliefs around what is required for successful education. You know, in order, you, you highlighted there, to understand why students aren't coming, we need to understand their motivations and their own theories of action about what they're trying to achieve in their life and what they think school means, things like that. You know, in terms of formulating the solution requirements, where well, we actually have to come up with a solution that the, the school community sees as a productive one. So we need to know what they value and what they believe is important. And then, you know, in terms of implementing it, that's where we really come into that space where you were talking about, you know, you might come up with against teachers who are resistant and that's where particularly deep theories of action uh, kind of work can come in. So I'm now starting to see the reduced change to increase improvement framework or that framework within that book as like a epicycle that sits within this CCPS and, and runs throughout it perhaps. Yes, and, and, and it, yeah, that's a nice word, epicycle, little micro, little little micro-causal inquiries into theories of action as needed, as needed, because I've now gone from individual theories of action and maybe group theory of action in the book to school improvement, which is multi-layered, multiple strands, and in Chapter 13, the case study of school improvement in the book just shows that. And you have to be efficient. Efficiency is a virtue. Yeah, okay. <laughs> and so if you don't need, you know, because efficiency involves not wasting other people's time, actually, and also getting to serving the students as, as in terms of fixing this attendance problem with integrity and thoroughness, but also efficiency. Those are all important requirements. And so delving deep, if you can get teachers on board without doing that, then don't. Yeah, that's great. That's more efficient. Love that. And I guess that's that's part of, I mean, in, in my leadership chapter of Tools for Teachers, I talk about kind of hiring for alignment. And if during the actual hiring process, you can wear your, your badge on your arm or your badge on your sleeve and say, this is what this school's about, this is what we believe, then you, you've circumvented a lot of that theory of action work because you've just started with a, the, a shared theory of action, which is efficient, which is, as you said, one of those virtues. Just to type the virtues back into this as well. So the virtues, I guess, are the way that teachers or leaders go about the motivations for why they go, how they go about this cl complex collaborative problem solving throughout the five stages, I guess, as well. Correct me if I'm wrong there. Yes. So in answering the question, which virtues are most important for educational leaders, given that I had described the work as context-sensitive practice and I had 
outlined context as critical to problem solving, then I had to think about, well, what are the virtues that are required to do that work well? And so that's where the problem solving virtues came from. And I landed on three sets or categories of problem solving virtues. The first one is strategic virtues, which is the ability in to prioritize and to declare with good educational reasons why solving the literacy problem or the attendance problem or whatever ought to be on your annual improvement plan as number one priority. So it's not only selecting strategic virtues, selecting the priority, being able to provide a transparent and honest argument for that selection, being able to maintain the focus on that priority as part of the strategic virtues and to embed it as well. And that's something which a lot of leaders struggle with. They they are encouraged to do too much at once. And then, I mean, I've had leaders and they'll, I'll say to them, oh, why are you doing maths as your improvement priority? And the answer is because we did literacy in the last two years. For the last two years, we did literacy, so now we're doing maths. And I'm saying, well, what happened with the literacy in terms of outcomes? What happened to the students in terms of outcomes? Mm. And, you know, the, the typical answer is, well, some teachers got better and some students got better. So, you know, moving to numeracy is not a strategic virtue because you've lost sight of the purpose. You know, the purpose is to prepare the kids to be literate in certain ways. You haven't succeeded. So, you know, business as usual and maths probably has to continue or at least what have you learned from your literacy efforts that are going to make your maths efforts and improvement wiser. That's strategic. It's it's a great point, Vivian. So I'll I'll maybe frame up a little bit because you've you've dived straight into one of the great things about your book is you offer kind of a taxonomy of virtue for education leaders, and you you give us three categories. So you give us leadership virtues, problem solving virtues and interpersonal virtues. So you've started in the the middle of those three just now because problem-solving virtues, so we've got leadership virtues, problem-solving virtues, interpersonal virtues. Problem-solving virtues have three kind of subcategories that you talk about, which is strategic virtues, analytic virtues, and imaginative virtues, and now you're really homing in for us on those strategic virtues. So we've talked about what virtues are. We've talked about the kind of the thesis of of your book, doing the right work in the right way. We've talked about complex collaborative problem solving and how that fits within and and supports teachers to do and and leaders to do the right work in the right way. We're now well-placed, Vivian, to return to this idea of virtues. And one of the great things you do in your book is you provide a bit of a, a taxonomy, a kind of framework for virtues for education leaders that makes it easy for us to kind of pull apart or pick apart what might be some of the virtues that are required to do the work right work in the right way effectively. Did you want to start off this kind of nitty-gritty section on virtues with a bit of an overview of this taxonomy? Yes. So the taxonomy has to address the role, the requirements of the role. 
This is not being a good person in general. This is being an excellent or good educational leader. And so given the work that's been described, uh, the right work, what virtues seem particularly relevant? And I've got three clusters of virtues that I'm suggesting. All of this, of course, is contestable. There's no, you know, firm answer. There's just various arguments. The first one I called leadership virtues, and that is quite a narrow cluster. It refers to the motivations that people, that lead people to want to be and continue to be leaders. People need to have the right reasons for wanting to be educational leaders, and those reasons should connect to the purposes. In other words, I want to make a bigger difference for more kids so that they can lead better lives, da-da-da, that sort of thing, as opposed to I want to be a leader because I get more money, because it's the next career move, etc. Now, I'm not saying you shouldn't be concerned about your next career move, but it's got to be motivated by an educational desire, a, a truly educational desire and linked to public service ideals, etc. So that's the motivation and not, and for example, not money's a bad, money is a bad motive for, for wanting to be a leader. Similarly, wanting to exercise power and control over others wanting to is also not a desirable motive for a leader. So those are quite narrow, that what that that category, that cluster, leadership virtues. The next one is much broader, which is since I've said that most of the work of leadership is problem solving, both treated, you know, problems that were solved in the past that I'm now in charge of making sure those routines roll out smoothly and consistently versus things that are not not going well enough that we need to, I need to lead the problem solving now. So what are the problem solving virtues? Three categories. Strategic, which is about picking the right problems, having arguments for why for example, looking at attendance is critical before changing the curriculum. These things may be linked, but we can't do everything at once. We need to have an argument for a sequence. So the strategic virtues under are the first sort of problem solving. Which problems are we actually going to tackle given that it is too hard and we don't have the time or the brain power or the space to do them all? Which are the most critical? and why. Second one is analytic virtues. Now, these are these virtues are, are connected to the idea of causal inquiry and testing and checking the quality of everybody's thinking about what the problem is and what causes it and what we need to do. So those analytic virtues are really critical to actually having high-quality thinking and high-quality decision-making. And I give a lot of examples of what those, how those virtues play out in meetings and conversations where people are trying to solve problems. The third one is imaginative virtues. Now, this is quite interesting as to how imaginative virtues connect to complex problem solving, and they certainly do, because one of the things we need to do as leaders is to 
integrate a whole lot of different things. So we have to integrate meeting budget requirements, taking into account the time and deadlines, the beliefs, the valid beliefs that we have about how to teach maths, for example, the availability of suitable resources and the professional development. Right. All of those set constraints on the sort of solution we can come up with and we need to be imaginative and creative about how we weave these things together in the best possible way. And so that's what imaginative virtues, it's about wanting to integrate rather than to set up tensions and oppositions. It's about challenging people who are what I call single-issue lobbyists. So they want that maths teaching problem to be solved in a way which absolutely does not involve any more work for them. Don't care about much else. Just I'm just going to fight everything that asks me to do any more work. That's what I call single issue lobbying, and that's that's really hard to uh, if you have to, that you know people who advocate for a one particular requirement, they need to be able to embrace the whole set of requirements, and it's leaders' job to model doing that. So those are the problem-solving virtues, strategic, analytic, and imaginative, and they're tightly connected to the stages of complex problem-solving. But a, the key, a key word is collaborative complex problem-solving. So how do we do all of this work together in a collaborative way? And that's where the interpersonal virtues come in. And I have picked out four particular, in this case, interpersonal virtues because my experience in workshops and thinking about the hard work of improvement, which is complex problem solving, I've picked out the virtues that I think are particularly needed. And the first one I've picked out is integrity. And I've tested this out, actually, with um, groups of about two groups of about 80 aspiring leaders and just ask them to list the virtues that they would want to see in a leader. And integrity was actually number one, which is not only walking your talk, but it's having the right talk. In other words, talk which links to the purposes and serves students. Because you can have, you can actually walk the talk, but if it's not good talk, it's not virtuous and as required for, for the educational leaders. Second one is respect, which is largely about listening and especially listening to difference and disagreement and not issuing a whole set of instructions to people who don't want to do what you want to do. You should be listening to them instead, not necessarily agreeing with them, but you certainly need to do them the respect of listening and, and, that's, and, and understanding the beliefs that produce their objections. The third one is courage. And I think I've, I've talked about, um, I mean, improvement requires almost by definition interrupting the way people currently practice. And that can be challenging. It can arouse defensiveness. And so how can you be courage, courageous in a virtuous sense is important. And along with courage, I want to pair empathy because if your courage if you're courageous without empathy, you're going to probably create more defensiveness and, and more hostility. So those are my three clusters. Mm, that's great, Vivian. That's so rich. 
Love that. Let's. I've got a. I've got at least one question. I think for pretty much each of those areas. So let's jump into that. You said leaders need to have the right motives. So they need to be getting into this for the purpose of having a positive impact. And that positive impact is going to be in line with those three purposes of education that you mentioned. And also, I wanted to highlight, I love love how you're weaving those purposes of education into this back again and again and again, because it's not done enough. Often we often I ask the question about purposes and then the, the interviewee doesn't kind of mention them again. But you, you've clearly, you've got this broad, you know, mental model of, of, of quality education and purposes are right at the core there. So, that's fantastic. But the question I wanted to ask is, because I'm just imagining listeners, and listeners are probably in a, in a number of positions. There's probably four positions they might be in. One is they are a leader, and they they know that they have the right motives. Two is they are a leader, and they know they don't have the right motives. <laughs> uh, they also might be a leader, and they might not have that self awareness, which creates a whole another kind of issue. Another is they are. A teacher in a school with a leader who they know has the right motives and another is there a teacher in a school with a leader who they know doesn't have the right motives so i'm curious can a school be successful and i'll, I'll ask this question with the, with the hat on of a teacher of a leader who knows they don't have the right motives i know i don't have the right motives but can't i still lead an effective school um on occasion but the, but the, the bad motives will leak out People will smell a rat. So no, I mean, if 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 your motives are for your own self-aggrandizement, if they are for your own career, you'll act in selfish ways. You you will not support and enrich others. You probably will be selfish rather than generous. You will be. Um, on the public stage with politicians and showcasing yourself and your school to a uh, exaggerate in an you know to an extreme in an extreme way rather than being in the school rolling your sleeves up doing collaborative complex problem solving which is jolly hard work you know if you're not really passionate and motivated in the right way you're not going to engage with that work you know it's much easier to be on the stage and you know what I mean by being on the stage, you know, you, your school is showcased, you showcased, you know, et cetera. Now, if you're showcased for the right reasons, that's fine. But sometimes you, we all know of leaders who are showcased and their staff go, their staff are in despair. Yeah, that's great. Couldn't agree more. And I, I, I was just thinking while you're talking then, there's another, another way of thinking about why a leader with the wrong motives or, or you know, non-virtuous motives is going to be toxic for a school. And that's because when we come to that stage three, formulate solution requirements, probably the key solution requirement in that leader's head is going to be a selfish one, like which of these things is going to make me look the best, right? And there's probably going to be a lot of context in which situations in which that that selfish motive, that selfish solution requirement is in contradiction to the solution requirement that is actually necessary to improve student outcomes. So we, we introduce another completely irrelevant to the purpose of education solution requirement that's going to derail, not in all cases, sometimes they're not mutually exclusive, but in several cases and many important cases, it's going to derail that, that process. Yeah. Well, I'm working with a senior leadership team now of a very large Auckland grammar school, and I'm teaching them collaborative complex problem solving. 
and the interpersonal part of that with um, another set of workshops as well. And that leader has very early on learned that his past leadership of the annual improvement processes that you know all Victorian schools have and similarly in New Zealand was focused on getting to the fix. You know, it's like 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 most school improvement processes, it goes from identify the problem to what's the fix. So from stage one to stage four, basically. And he has very publicly said that he wants to learn a new model, that he wants to enable his senior team to slow down. We've reviewed the progress made last year in terms of whether or not the improvement was achieved. It mostly wasn't. I've committed to them. My job is to ensure that that doesn't happen again this year. They're all learning this new model. They're all learning together as I am with them. So he's, it's, for him, it's not about looking good and telling his board that, you know, the quick fix is in place and it's all hunky-dory. For him, it's about, um, about positioning himself. It's a, for him, it's about learning. So that's, that's a, you know, the virtuous motives there are, are really delightful to work with. That's great. That's wonderful. So, so that's kind of from that perspective of working with a, a leader who does have those virtuous motives. I've asked a question from the perspective of a leader who doesn't have virtuous motives, and we've definitively answered that one, I think, Vivian. What about a teacher who's working in a school underneath a leader whom they know does not have virtuous motives? motives what advice would you have for them well the if they were in my workshop what i would be doing is saying to them can you think of a situation which that where this has really impacted on you because their job isn't to change the character of the leader in general their job is to try to do a better job solving the particular problems that they're responsible for. So think of an example where this has really impacted on you and it's been made it hard for you. And then I would coach them into having the conversation with that leader. In other words, influencing upwards and saying things like, I don't think you've you've heard me about what, you know, I don't think you've listened carefully. I'd like to have another go at communicating with you about X and Y or whatever. So we coach them into that sort of thing. Now, you know, in many cases, they are surprised at how effective they can be in influencing upwards. But I'm not saying it's all, you know, but I mean, the key, the key determinant of whether or not they are going to be effective is their own skill. They're very focused on what's wrong with the other person. And there probably is something wrong with the other person. But the point is to test whether or not you can help that other person make a context specific shift now if i was the if i was the coach of that leader i would want to address their motives more generally but the teacher is not the coach of that leader how do you how would you address the motives if you were the coach i'm very curious we would be talking about more general things like how they're feeling about the job about whether or not they are um, achieving the goals they want to achieve. And then we'd be going into why do they think they haven't achieved them and why do they think they're having difficulty with certain staff, et cetera, and we'd look at that in detail and that would get at their beliefs and their motives. 
I mean, I'm working with a leader, another principal like that at the moment, who becomes enormously frustrated with her team and and becomes impatient and the team perceives that. She's got incredibly good motives in terms of serving the students, but, but she's getting the backs up of her colleagues without really understanding why. And she's been able to shift quite a lot of that in eight sessions. When you do come across a leader who's kind of just, you can tell they're just not driven by the right motives and you're in a position where you're supposed to be supporting this person to be a more supportive leader, like what do you think? That must just be really, really hard because you, you, you've got this like refined mental model of what effective leadership is and at, from like the core, this person isn't starting from the right motives. So how do you feel in that situation and how, how do you approach it? Well, what I do is I try to test whether or not my attributions about their motives are correct in con- in concrete ways. I try to test it. You know, I don't want to be prejudging it and I certainly don't want to be dismissing them. I want to test whether my attribute, and it might mean that you get to a really good conversation about them retiring or doing a different job. Yeah, that's great. And I mean, there you're modeling yourself kind of going through that theories of action inquiry process and and entering it without preformed concrete beliefs but with hypotheses to test through the conversation. So thank you for modeling that, Vivian. That's analytic virtues. Yeah, that's gold. So that was the le- – we were talking about leadership virtues. There's Back to the taxonomy for our listeners, leadership problem solving and interpersonal. We were just talking about leadership, which is all about having the right motives. We're now moving into problem solving virtues, the first of which is strategic virtues, which is about prioritizing. What do leaders often get wrong when it comes to prioritizing? They're not ruthless enough. There's too many improvement goals and sometimes encouraged by a system that requires them to have, you know, six different goals in their improvement plans. And they and policymakers have too many because they don't recognise how much learning needs to be done in order to improve in a specific area. So to use an example, a primary school example this time, this school that I'm working in has had about $100,000 worth of professional learning in Mathematics in mathematics over two to three years, not one jot of difference to maths outcomes for the kids. So the the issue then is deep causal inquiry. So as I said to that team, I don't want to do anything until we learn from the past and inquire into why this has happened. I don't know anything much about maths, but they asked. They could see they were they were insightful enough to recognize that there was an issue in their own leadership of the improvement processes. And I said, everything that I do with you around leadership is going to be focused on maths and your leadership of this maths curriculum change and improvement. Now, in order, and and the causal inquiry showed that there were layers and layers and layers of school-related causes of the failure to improve maths. There was um, poor communication between facilitators and leaders, mutual blaming between the facilitators and the school leaders, middle leaders who had the time and the money to support their teachers in using the maths pedagogy, the middle leaders 
did not know how to do the pedagogy themselves and were not therefore able or willing to teach the teachers. Plus, they colluded in the pretense that they were doing it. The senior leaders did not understand that the middle leaders were not doing the job and the senior leaders did not inquire sufficiently and listen well enough to recognise that the middle leaders were pretending to do the job. The accountability of getting the data was absent. 50% of the data was not brought in on time and on and on. Now, that's all about, at one level, maths, but in order to improve anything in that school, you have to solve all of those problems. So that is what strategic focus is about. It's about narrow and deep. And it it doesn't matter whether it's bullying, whether it's literacy, whether it's drama, I don't care what it is, the school's not going to be able to improve anything until those conditions, those preconditions have been put in place. That's great, Vivian. For a leader who does come into a school, perhaps a new leader, they come into a school and they do this kind of a bit of a overview. They might talk to a bunch of people, they might collect some data, and they actually identify a whole heap of issues. You know, maths, literacy, trust issues, attendance issues, bullying, you know, heaps of stuff. But at the same time, they know that a strategic focus is narrow and deep. How do they know where to start? Well, they have to have a theory. So your theory might be that the bullying is such that the bullying might be related to the attendance, which is related to the achievement deficit. So then that suggests start with start with bullying, monitor how it affects attendance, talk to the kids and find out whether they skip classes because they're feeling or school because they're feeling bullied. So you will learn through the inquiry, it doesn't matter actually, you will learn through the inquiry process how these things are interconnected. And at one level, if there are good arguments for starting in different places, so one person's got an argument for starting in attendance, which is pretty, sounds pretty reasonable, and this other person's got an argument for starting with bullying, and that sounds pretty reasonable, and another person wants to start with with teaching and the way maths is taught or whatever. Well, at one level, it doesn't actually matter where you start as long as you start with one thing and you're serious about it because it's all joined up. (laughs) Yeah. Now, what might be hard is to manage the fact that the maths department wants you to start there and and the wellbeing leaders want you to start there and and there's a political sort of... (laughs) driver going on here but I think if you have that conversation together they listen to each other's arguments and then sometimes you can actually test it you can go and say you can say okay well can we quickly find out whether there is a strong connection between bullying and attendance so you actually do it you actually make your priority in a in an evidence-based way that's great Vivian so to recap that for listeners the question I asked was you know, how did leaders know where to start? And the first, very first bit of your answer was you have to have a theory. And so that really just highlights, and and then you came back to the idea that everything within a school is connected. Some things may be more causal than others, but 
you know, there are cycles of causality and many interconnected kind of webs of causality as well. So starting anywhere can make sense. But but I think, um, I mean, <laughs> one of the things I love about talking to you, Vivian, is every time I ask you a question, you respond in a way that is consistent with the, your own kind of model that you've been talking about the whole time. So you, you said essentially your answer then you have to have a theory was you have to have a theory of action, right? You have to actually construct ideally collaboratively because this person might say this, this might say this. You have to construct a causal theory of action that you can then test and act upon to have an impact in your context. Right. Yeah. So in the attendance case in my book, in the in the big school improvement attendance case in my book, there were multiple causes, but one was a pretty badly managed attendance system. And so they started there, but they also knew that there were teaching classroom-related causes of poor attendance that needed to be addressed as well. So that was that was there and it was upfront. But they worked particularly on the management issues. And the reason why they did that was not only that it's low-hanging fruit and it's easier, but also because they didn't yet have their shared instructional framework in place. So they were didn't feel that it was entirely proper and fair to start critiquing teachers' classroom practice when they hadn't completed the process of getting the shared instructional framework. So that was another argument for starting with attendance. By the time they had got a lot of progress and improvement in attendance, that um, instructional framework was completed and the next year they were going to really push that. That's good. That's a that's another really really fantastic argument. So within so we've got our three types of le- leadership virtues for educational leaders: leadership virtues, problem solving, and interpersonal. We were just looking. We covered leadership virtues, where we, we were just looking at problem solving virtues and the strategic virtue. The second and third are analytic virtues and imaginative virtues. Now, I think you've already covered imaginative enough because you said that when there's a whole heap of completing, competing priorities and, and solution constraints, for a leader to be effective, they need to be able to imagine several solutions that bring together those things. So we probably don't need to talk about that heaps, especially given our limited time. But one, one quick question on the analytical virtues front. Where do you think schools at, broad brushstrokes, in terms of the skill sets required to do effective analytical problem solving? Pretty low. And part of the reason is because most leaders and policymakers jump from we have a problem to how can we fix it. So they're going from stage one to stage four. They're skipping causal inquiry altogether or they they are just putting out a bunch of beliefs that everybody sort of takes for granted, well, the kids don't turn up because they're hungry and there's poverty or whatever. Those beliefs are not tested, and so we roll out a breakfast program and going straight to stage four. So if you do that often enough, you actually don't learn or you get out of the habit of doing causal inquiry. So that's one reason why that's quite the capability in that is quite low. A second reason is that talking about cause at times requires courage because a lot of causes, school-based causes, are related to the quality of teaching and leadership. And so you get a biased discussion of cause. You talk about in your causal inquiry, there's a whole lot of discussion about what's wrong with kids and families. 
and not very much discussion about how what we're teaching and how we're teaching may be contributing to these disappointing results. So analytic skills are not high. Yeah, and just the 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 recognition that that analytic skills involves a deep commitment to what I call what's called in social psychology accuracy motivation. In other words, a high need to be accurate. And so asking people to say how they arrived at their views, what the evidence of their views is, give examples of what they mean, those are not uh, well-practiced skills. That's great. And that that idea of kind of accuracy motivation relates really well to a Marcus Aurelius quote, which I've just pulled up, which is in relation to reading, but I can think it could be applied more broadly. Read with precision and do not be satisfied with a generalized understanding, nor agree quickly with those who are just chattering away from meditation. It's 1.7.7. I think that captures that kind of accuracy motivation idea really well um, that needs to drive that, that analytical virtue. That's good. And I, like, I also found quite striking what you were saying then about the habit of inquiring and the habit of mind of inquiring and how when we, when we continually jump from problem to sol- potential solution and skip that, we, you know, speaking about routines, we get out of the routine of doing that hard cognitive work, which, you know, impoverishes us all. Yeah, and and there is, I mean, I like your phrase, hard cognitive work, because there is another motivation, which is um, need for cognition. In other words, people differ in their enjoyment of and desire for thinking. I mean, I think I have a very high need for cognition. In fact, I quite often, um, if my brain switches off, I fall asleep. (laughs) But you know, so that doing the hard thinking work, which is again, and, and it's tiring. And, and so, why, you know, you should not have six improvement projects that you're pursuing at once. It's exhausting. Mm, 100%. So that, that's leadership virtues, problem-solving virtues, which were strategic, analytic, and imaginative. Finally, interpersonal virtues, Vivian, which you've already told us uh, include integrity, amongst other things, integrity, respect, courage, and empathy. Just one question on this. What are some of the main things you do when you work with people, leaders, to try to develop and and hone these interpersonal virtues? Well, the methodology I, I use in the workshops is one that is anchored in people's real on-the-job challenges and works off behavioral evidence of how they deal with those challenges, which means they show me by actually inviting a partner, briefing a partner or a group in the workshop to play the role of the other people. They are themselves and they have the conversation. So that enables them and me to get evidence of their behavior. So those are the words. Then I can probe into what they're thinking while they're speaking. So that gets me into the thoughts and the motives. And then you offer a critique, nor often they feel stuck, you unpack that a bit, and then you coach them or and or model into a more effective alternative. So for empathy, for example, we would coach them into listening, not being afraid to probe feelings, to use feeling words, 
to check with the other person whether they've accurately understood another person's feelings, emotions, and point of view, but to, however, be courageous and not be controlled by, for example, another person's crying, to not be controlled by it. So there's that mix of courage and empathy, but to give people choices about if they're crying, to ask them whether you they want to stop or whether to continue. Typically, they say they want to continue, and that's respect, actually, right there, giving the person uh, not a choice rather than unilaterally deciding that we're going to stop because you're crying. You know, so am I, give, am I giving a sense of how we actually do this? Yeah, yeah, it's 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 problem based or problem centered and context centered practice, literally practicing it as well as providing them with the theoretical frameworks to understand why they're practicing things in a certain way. That makes sense. And and I mean that specific example that you spoke about there reminds me of one really cool distinction or or phrase that you use in your book was the task relationship dilemma. Yes. Could you just quickly, before we move into some kind of closing questions, Vivian, talk about or highlight what do you mean by the the task relationship dilemma? Well, when leaders have to have important conversations about teaching and learning, they often experience a dilemma between having a deep conversation about the teaching and learning that they believe is problematic or that concerns them in some way and maintaining the relationship with the teacher uh, in question. And so they want to be able to say that they are concerned about the lack of progress of a group of students in reading and they will, instead of saying that and then checking whether the teacher agrees with them, they will ask a bunch of leading questions. How's it going? What do you think is happening with these kids over here? How, how are you feeling? How are you feeling, Ollie, about your reading program? So you'll get a bunch of these leading questions. And the reason why they're doing it is because they think that if they say that they're concerned about the teacher's reading program, that they will be just damaging the relationship. And the, the interesting thing is, is that they're right because they've gone into the conversation thinking, this person's reading program isn't good enough. Oh my goodness, how am I going to tell them? I'll ask them questions and see if they can fess up to the fact that they're concerned about their reading results and program as well, and then I won't have to tell them, right? So the problem, they're in that dilemma because they are assuming that their view of that reading program is correct. And having assumed that they've under, that they've got the truth and that they have to just gently as possible inject the truth into you without you going, ouch. So they're in that dilemma. And the dilemma comes from their motivation, which is to be right and to be persuade the other person of their rightness. Instead of saying, look, I've got a view about what's happening in reading in your class. I've looked at the results. I want to tell you how I see them. And I certainly want to feel find out from you how you see these results and particularly if you see them differently. That's the difference. One's an open, one's open-minded and the other is closed-minded. The first one was closed-minded, that one is open-minded. 
It's got integrity because you have said your point of view. It's respectful because you haven't communicated your point of view as the truth. Mm, that's so good, Vivian. That's so good because I think I think a lot of listeners will be f- familiar with that feeling of oh no, I can't you know be honest here or uh, something's got to give here. It's either going to be the relationship or it's going to be our success in implementing this thing or following this initiative or what it might be. But what you've highlighted there coming in is that 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 task relationship dilemma is created by a certainty of judgment that is likely unwarranted and 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 also fundamentally unhelpful in such a conversation. Yes, it's the certainty. It's the certainty that is problematic. The judgment may turn out to be correct, but you've got to test it and check it, and that's the analytic virtues and the respect. Yeah, and it also makes space to authentically hear from the other person, right, which which makes sure that they, they're felt heard and they're actually able to kind of talk and, and, and provide the rationale and the theories of action behind their actions, yeah, which builds relationship. Yeah. Now, these, these interpersonal virtues we teach in a series of workshops which we call now Leading by Learning. So the, the learning motivation, learning whether my view about your reading program is correct, is the central ethic of those workshops. And we're, we're, I'm working now on, on integrating leading by learning with teaching collaborative complex problem solving. How do I put those two things together? That's what we're working on now, getting a series of workshops that do that. It's an exciting project. And the very final question before some kind of closing questions, Vivian, listeners are listening to this podcast. They're going, all right, these, these, I'm sold, Vivian, I'm sold. Virtues are important. I've got to make sure that any leader I hire um, has these virtues, any middle leader that a principal hires or any, any principal that a kind of department hires. They know they're important, but, but how do we actually identify in like an interview or throughout an interview process whether the person on the opposite side of the table that we're interviewing has the virtues that are required? Well, virtues are reliable dispositions of character. So, you know, one-off interviews are giving you snapshots, but hey, you you ha- you haven't got time and you can't get, you know, the life history of the person. But what I would do is is do behavioral I would seek behavioral evidence by for example posing the challenge. You've got a teacher, tell me you've got a teacher who's um decided to routinely eject this group of students from their class, what would you do and why? You need to talk to one of your teachers about their reading program. You're concerned about X and Y. I'm the teacher. What do you say to me? So you're getting trying to get some behavioral evidence and then you say to them to get at the motives and the thinking, you say, why did you say that? What were you thinking that led you to say that? So that you're not just looking at the words, you're looking at the motives and the reasoning that produced the words. And I think if you get three or four scenarios that that are real to your interviewee and you ask them to actually give an authentic response, in other words, say it, then you get some insight into those virtues. But also it's important to recognize that these are these are highly advanced skills at, you know at the, at the highest level and so you might want to also give the 
candidates an opportunity to reflect and self-assess and say, okay, you said X and Y, and you've told me why, can you think of, you know, how effective do you think that will be? What are the risks of doing it that way? What might you have neglected? What about the students? You know, so that you challenge them and you can get more of their reasoning. And if somebody didn't do a very good job, but was clearly had insight into why it wasn't a good job and wanted to do it in a in a more virtuous way, then that would be a plus for me. Mm, that's great. Fantastic answer, Vivian. So we essentially do a role play, put them in the hot seat and then give them an opportunity to reflect upon that and, and show their level of metacognition and, and knowledge about the you know effective leadership practices and virtues. Fantastic. All right, some closing questions. How, how can people find out more about your work, Vivian? You mean other than reading my books? And this book as well, yeah. I'm not on social media and I'm not, I don't have up to date websites and things. So, with difficulty. <laughs> Sorry, Ollie. <laughs> got it, got it. That's all right. So, the answer is buy the books. Love that. Yeah, they can, they can email me. Got it. They can email me, but they can also just Google my research and read and read. I mean, there's, there's lots of research articles that I've written that are referenced in the book. So if they just look for my my work on Google or whatever, they'll find lots of articles. They can also look up Leading by Learning to find out more about that. Cool. And I'll include links to all those things in the show notes. What are three of your favorite books on education, Vivian, or, or, or even or on anything to do with education theory or theory more broadly that you think leaders, listeners might like to check out? Well, I've just read a wonderful, in the sense of rigorous and really important report from the Harvard Centre on Educational Policy on the impact of remote remote and hybrid learning on students from different socioeconomic groups. It's an incredibly important report and just shows how devastating remote learning is for our equity problem. So that one, that reports by Dan Goldhaber, H-A-B-E-R, Goldhaber, and it's a report from the Centre for Educational Policy Research at Harvard. So that's one. The other book that I'm reading that I really like because I'm doing a lot of consulting and facilitating is Roger Schwartz, The Skilled Facilitator, and the value base of his work and it's the third edition, is based on Arduous and Schoen's work, so which is the sort of stable that I come out of. I'm looking at that when I'm talking to teams about what makes effective teams, when I'm thinking about issues of confidentiality and whether I should be agreeing to interview individuals rather than just talk about the team with the team and not carry other people's water for them. That's an important book. The other book I'm really enjoying is this one, Tools for Teachers by Oliver Lovell. And the reason why I I think this is such an important book is because I've thought for a long time that one of the problems with teaching, unlike other professions, is that it doesn't have a technology. It doesn't have a set of reliable evidence-based routines for producing the results that produce the purposes. And what that book, your book, Ollie, 
based on all the experts that you've been interviewing and and books like the National Academy books, uh, How Students Learn, show that we do actually have a, te- a technology in the sense of we know in a research sense how to teach kids deep in a way that they succeed in deep learning. What we don't have is a culture of teaching which expects teach to, teachers to be inducted into and expected to use that technology. We still can't make up our mind whether teaching is a cottage industry where everybody can make it up themselves as they go, teaching according to their style and their comfort or discomfort, and not having some highly sophisticated flexible, context-responsive, but they are procedures and tools and technologies in that sense of routines that reliably produce certain outcomes. We do have that. Our problem is we don't have a profession which expects to and is expected to use it, nor are are they inducted into it including in pre-service teacher education. So that's one of the things I've been thinking about, Ollie, in reading Tools for Teachers. All right. Vivian, any last calls for action or things you'd like listeners to go away today and do? Well, last sentence in my book is about, because I I finish up with, you know, how do we develop more virtuous leaders through both our selection processes and our developmental processes for leaders. But the last sentence I say is perhaps the most important thing is really, really wanting to be a more excellent leader. And so that that motivation. And that includes for exhausted leaders That includes recognising that wanting to be a more excellent leader will probably require them to do less, more intensively focused on the strategic priorities. So becoming a more excellent leader does not mean cycling faster and burning themselves out. But that really, really wanting, if that's the issue that's stopping you, really, really trying to find a way of getting on top of that and so that you can make a bigger difference for more students and do your job to a level of excellence where you feel satisfied. Vivian Robinson, thank you so much for your time today. It was an absolute pleasure to talk to you and and to to really, I feel, build on our first conversation. As I said, our first conversation was, for me, a very impactful one. I think it gave me a kind of framework for some thing to talk, a framework to talk about some things that I had already sensed in and around leadership and in and around effective conversations for leadership. And it gave me a fantastic vocabulary. And what this new book has done, Virtuous Educational Leadership, doing the right work the right way, has really built on that and deepened it and talked about some of the things that sit behind it. And I think today we've covered a lot of quality content on those virtues, you know, whether it be virtues for uh, leadership virtues, problem-solving virtues, or interpersonal virtues. You've just brought this whole taxonomy together in a fantastic package that I know has empowered me and will continue to empower many leaders over the years. So thank you so much for your time, Vivian, and I can't wait for for your next book whenever that might come up. We'll we'll see what that one's going to be about. And thank you so much for your fantastic contributions. You're welcome, Ollie. It's been a pleasure talking with you again. 
Thanks, Vivian. Thank you for listening to this episode of the ERRR podcast. If you're keen to never miss a podcast, a blog post, or other exciting educational announcement, then jump onto ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe for my weekly summary of key takeaways on all things teaching and learning. That web address for a weekly email summary, again, is ollilovell.com forward slash subscribe. If you enjoyed this episode, then please share it with friends and colleagues. And if you've got any suggestions for future guests you'd like to hear on the ERRR podcast, I'd love to hear from you. Or if you've got any questions, comments, thoughts, or reflections on this episode or any other ERRR episode, I always welcome contact from listeners via Twitter or email. Thanks for your time and listening today. Have a wonderful week. And until next time, keep learning.